chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, where it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. You know, weddings can be uh, very exciting times in community. Uh, I don't know that I've seen this in a while, but newspapers often will publish um, not only obituaries and not only births, but weddings. And anybody here, when you got married, did you publish something in the newspaper to share about your wedding day? Anybody? Jenny, you're raising your hand. You're not even married. Okay. (laughs) You're going to? Yeah. Good thought. So Casey, you did. Uh, We did. Lindsay and myself. In fact, our anniversary was this last week. And I was trying to track it down because we had a newspaper clipping, and it's somewhere in our albums, and, uh, and it, you know, talks about who we are and how we met and who our parents are and the wedding. And, but I also remember being younger and tracking down my mom's um, wedding article, and it was a lot more in detail. Uh, it was everything like the colors were this and the fabric of the dresses were that and uh, all kinds of little more minute details. Back in the day when there wasn't social media, you had to write about your wedding so everyone could hear about it. If they were going to write uh, about my wedding day, uh, which they did, but I don't really remember all that it said, uh, of course they would have written about the most beautiful bride in all of Klamath County, right? She looked gorgeous that day. Uh, But they probably also would have written that I got to drive my uncle's 2000 Corvette away from the wedding. And that was an incredible thing, too. I was so stoked come outside with my wife and everyone's cheering and there's this Corvette sitting there that we get to hop in and her dress is like flowing in the wind and all my bros are like, this is great. I'm like, I know, it's just like in the movies, huh? And I go pulling out of Bible Baptist Church in Klamath Falls and I'm just ready to take my bride for a spin in a vet, right? And I hit a red light, like right out of the parking lot. It's on our wedding video. I pull out, and everyone's like, woo, and I'm like, yeah. Isn't this great, honey? This is like so good. Hold hands. Yep. This is a really long light, isn't it? There was a farmer in a flatbed truck next to us with a border collie, and he's like, hey, woo-hoo, Yeah. Waiting, in for this thing. I'd gone the long way to hopefully get to drive a little farther to the golf course where our reception was, and I realized this is just taking too long. I buzzed back around. There was an accident on the road on the way to our reception, so I went under 20 the whole time, and it was over. Um, That would have all been in our wedding article. I know it. It was a very special part of the day. Especially when at the reception, I parked in a disabled spot, and so someone had to say, whose Corvette is out here? You need to move it. Sorry. (laughs) You can tell what the highlight of the day was. It was pretty awesome. Would have been in the newspaper, I'm telling you. Now, Jesus had an incredible thing happen at a wedding that he was at, that if it had made the media, the Instagram, the newspaper, Everyone would have been talking about it. And just like the Corvette had nothing to do with the bride, had nothing to do with the groom, had everything to do with the beverages at the party. 
What's going on with that? And, uh, and it was very noteworthy. I mean, there's a whole scene here at this Canaan wedding. Uh, but not only is there a scene, there's a lesson for us in it that, honestly, this is my first time teaching through John, and I never had seen it till I studied in, in depth this week, and it's really exciting. It's, it's beyond what you would have just anticipated. But as we know the whole of Scripture and even the other Gospels, there's something exciting here that I know the Lord wants to show to us today. And so there's this third day, there's a wedding. Uh, this is right in context after Jesus makes his first disciples. Uh, this is right in context after he has an encounter with Nathaniel, and Nathaniel becomes a disciple. And so kind of in, in our language, we would say two days later is kind of what's happening here in these opening words. Two days later, after the encounter with Nathaniel, uh, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Uh, so an incredible thing here is that we're going to see Jesus uh, a part of a wedding, and we'll get into that in a second. But that it happened in this place called Cana. It's actually where Nathaniel was from. And we do have a little Google Earth image for you to check out so that you have a bit of an idea. We have the Sea of Galilee uh, to the east of where Cana was. Now, Cana actually is a, an abandoned um, village now. It's, it's nothing but stones and rocks. There's an abandoned synagogue there. And uh, it's, I love going to those places in Israel when I go. Because, you know, the tourists haven't swamped over them and, and built big churches and cathedrals over them. It's just this total rock pile out in the middle of nowhere that a lot of times no one even knows about. Josephus knew about it when he wrote his story as a historian about when he became a general over the Israeli army. He writes about his headquarters being at Cana, the place where the miracle of the water turned to wine took place. So... Uh, whenever those pictures end up popping up, we'll check those out. Uh, but uh, it was at a, a place in the area of Galilee. Here's some of just the rubble and the rock piles uh, from buildings that were around. This is the little hill that Cana sat upon. So you can just imagine uh, a feast, uh, a party, a seven-day wedding celebration. That's the old synagogue. And, um, you know, this is, this is the place where Jesus did his miracle, right, that we're going to read about today. Super exciting not only was Jesus there, but his mother was there. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, she's not called Mary. Maybe it's not confuse her with the other Marys that are in the Gospel. Jesus called the mother of Jesus. That's a pretty awesome title to have, you know. I, I think that oftentimes we can give Catholics a bad rap uh, in their value of Mary. And of course, it has, been, it has gone too far, and we'll talk about that in a second. But in, in my kind of criticism of the Catholics and even their praying to Mary and all of that, I've even neglected just man, having a value and an honor for who Mary was. Like, it's a pretty incredible thing to be a young virgin girl who is chosen by the Lord to bring the Messiah, the Son of God, into the world. Like, big deal much? Yes, I think so, probably. So let's give her a little credit. Like, all right, you know, um, in fact... Even her song about this incredible event of, of bringing the Son of God into the world, she says, man, for the rest of time, people are going to call me blessed. Like, this is a major blessing. And, uh, and so it's, it's a neat scene here at this wedding on that hill that you saw. Jesus' mother was there. That lady has seen some things, 
okay? And, uh, and on this day, she's going to see an incredible miracle as well. Not only was Mary there, but in verse 2, both Jesus and his disciples were invited, invited to the wedding. So Jesus' mother is there. Some of his new friends are there. At this point, he only has a number, a small number of disciples, about five or six of them. Uh, maybe there were some more added at this point in the, in the last couple days. But, um, you know, he, he must know the groom uh, in some way, in such a way that, hey, Jesus, we want you here. Want your mom here? Mom's going to have an involved role in just a little bit. Um, but also, man, you've got some friends. You've got some new friends. They've been hanging around with you, following you around. Bring them too. Bring your friends. Bring these wedding guests. And, uh, and so they're invited to this wedding as well. Uh, Jesus is there. Uh, it shows us that Jesus has a care for weddings. You know, Jesus loves weddings. Of course, uh, as God, he uh, created the institution of marriage in, in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, that covenant was made as a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and there's such a value. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14 says that marriage is honorable among all. It's an honorable institution. It's an honorable covenant. Um, and Jesus shows his support by being at the wedding. Um, and, and with that, in the culture of the ASEAN community of his day, in the culture of the Qumran community that was over by the Dead Sea, they were such aesthetics, uh, nearly monks, that they uh, actually saw uh, marriage as something nearly evil, like something to be looked down upon. And, um, and, and you know, it's an interesting flavor of many cults. If you study cults, a lot of times uh, marriage is looked down upon, except... If you're the cult leader, then you get to go ahead and marry all the women, even if they're already married to the male followers in your, in your sect. So uh, all that to say, how awesome to see the Son of God valuing marriage. It's an honorable thing, and he's coming to enjoy this seven-day wedding celebration. In verse 3, it says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I found it interesting as I was reading this that it, this word when is here. Um, it, it seems like it wasn't so sudden, uh, like it was bound to happen. Uh, it was when it happened. It happened. They ran out of wine. Uh, and it's a problem. I mean, you don't want to run out of beverages of any kind when you're hosting a party. Uh, but when you're at this wedding celebration, the culture of the day was this seven-day wedding feast went on and on. It was a very exciting time, the pinnacle of a groom's life and the honor of the groom's family. And so if they were to run out of something in their hospitality, especially the wine, it would have brought shame upon the whole family for the rest of their lives. Uh, in such a way that there's historical evidence that when something like this happens, that the groom's family has to pay restitution and can be prosecuted in order to restore honor back to the bride's family. Okay, so this isn't a little deal. 
Okay, this is a pretty big cultural issue uh, that's happening here. And you got to love Mary. For some reason, she's taking a special interest in this problem. She may have been really good friends with the groom's family, the groom's wife. It seems like there's something like that involved. Um, but she, she takes a special interest in this problem, and, uh, and she thinks she knows a bit of a resolution of how to solve it as well. And so she comes, and it's just, I kind of like how fast-paced this whole drama is right now, you know? When they ran out of wine, uh, the mother of Jesus just came up to Jesus and was like, they have no wine. You know what this means, right? And so Jesus says to her, this is something every one of us would say to our mother, when they come up to us at special events, and there's a problem, just write this in your notes, guys. Write this in your notes so that you can talk to your mom like this and... Jesus did it. We want to be like Jesus. So let's, okay. It starts out like this. Woman, okay, so first way, great way to win friends and influence people, okay. Uh, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Okay, moms love it when you're like this with them, okay. My mom especially, she would be like, you're right, okay. Um, in writing this, I was remembering, uh, you know, when you're a senior in high school and you have uh, like a special seniors banquet or something like that, this, there was a mother's banquet with the senior sons and there was a moment for all the seniors to write special thank yous to their mom. Being the comedian that I am, I thought I'd reverse it and that I got to serve my mom for the last 18 years and thank you for letting, oh, that was not good, no bueno. Mama Mia, Mama Madda, okay? And uh, she forgave me, and she talks to me now. Was, this week is my 20-year high school reunion, and we're finally, like, moving past this until now. Um, but I said, woman, um, wh- no, I'm kidding. Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Okay, let's just move beyond that he calls her woman here, Okay. It's not the same as when we kind of throw that out here in 2020 Prineville, okay? It's not the same, but it's not all that different, okay? So bear with me as we get into a little bit of the lingo of the day. Culture is king, context is king when you're studying the scriptures, okay? Jesus is going to use the same phrase in John chapter 19, verse 26, okay? It says, uh, this is Jesus talking from the cross, And he sees his mother while he's from the cross. And he says to John, the disciple, woman, behold your son. Okay. So in his final moments, he's about to die. He has care and concern for his mother. And he looks at her and he calls her woman. So it's the same word. And it's in the context of care and setting up the future for, for her to be provided for. And so we got to know that as he says it in John chapter 2, he also says it in a caring way. So it has the context of, it, it has caring connotations, okay, in the way that he uh, writes this. Um, but the, the phrase, there are so many books and paragraphs written about this. And, uh, and when you look at the, uh, bringing it into 2020 Prineville type, it, it has a very southern type 
sound to it. It's something along what kids in the South would say to their moms when they say, no ma'am or yes ma'am, okay? Uh, so there's that aspect of it. Maybe we even kind of say that when we talk to our moms around here, like, yes ma'am, you know, okay, no ma'am, you know, or whatever, you know. And uh, so ma'am, however, even as you study the, the deepness of the original language, it still doesn't hit the nail on the head. Okay, so what is happening here is Jesus is using language that is respectful, but it's also separating him from that mother-son relationship a bit, and it's followed by a little bit of a word of reprove, a little bit of a word of kind of correction to his mother, okay? And uh, let's just look at what a couple of the other translations have to say about this. The ESV puts it this way, woman, or ma'am, but, but maybe a little more separating from a mother than to a son. What does this have to do with me? Or the NIV says, why do you involve me? The New Revived Standard Version says, what concern is that to you and to me? Okay, so... Uh, He's getting at something in the way he's communicating with his mom right now, okay? There's a couple things. Uh, number one, Mary is awesome, okay? She has a problem, and she knows where to go for a resolution for her problem, okay? Mary, it's assumed, is a widow by this point in her life. It's, uh, Joseph hasn't really been brought up since the temple experience where Jesus went missing for a few days, you know? Uh, Joseph hasn't been around. So it's assumed that he died probably years before and that this good son has been taking care of his mom. And if you're a mom, who else do you want taking care of you and providing than your carpenter son who just also happens to be the son of God, okay? Uh, he's probably doing a good job taking care. And so she knows, like, I can go to Jesus uh, for help with this dilemma, but she also knows there's, there's something even more special about him. There's not much founding, but an old Apocrypha uh, writing says that uh, when Jesus was a toddler, he turned clay pigeons into real pigeons, okay? Uh, there's, there's no real historical backing that except from an Apocrypha writing, which is not on the same level of authority as biblical writing. Um, but with that being said, you know, I'm sure Jesus was a pretty special kid growing up. And Jesus knew, I've got a problem. My son Jesus is bound to have the solution. The problem with the wedding of Cana is that it comes on the heels of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist and being anointed by the Holy Spirit for public ministry, which kickstarts uh, the kingdom of God being at hand. And so Mary is kind of making her request at the wrong time. Time. If this would have happened a year earlier, it would have been a little bit different on how, how it all went down. But Jesus is now moving in history in this moment in Galilee where the kingdom is coming and she can't approach him the way she used to just as a mom. She's got to come to him through the avenue that everybody's got to come to him uh, by faith, trusting in him but not throwing the mom card out. Now she's coming before the Lord for a working of this miracle in the situation that she's at, okay? Um, Peter's gonna try to do the same thing later in Peter's life. Hey, we're bros, we've been hanging out. 
I'm going to tell you not so. I'm going to kind of get in and work on the earthly side of things. And Jesus is going to speak correction into Peter, even though there, there's been a great relationship there. Peter gets corrected by Jesus as well um, when they, they're coming in the wrong way. And it just happens to be for Mary. It's, it's the wrong time to come the way that you're coming as a mom. You got to come as like a child of faith now. And so it's still good. Okay, it's still good. There's just a little bit of awkward mother-son tension as he's God and he's bringing salvation to the world and there's other stuff going on besides just what's going on at the wedding right now. Okay, and, uh, and you know, Mary's cool. She rolls with it. It's almost like she just kind of shakes it off and barely even hears it. But all the things that I've read is there's a little bit of correction in the way Jesus puts this and in the whole woman thing, it's not, he's not calling her mommy anymore. You know, um, there's, there's a separation. It's actually a respectful term, but it's not the mom-son thing anymore. Okay? Is that making sense? You guys are like, whoa, you spent a little too much time on this. Okay? Go back to talking about Corvettes. Okay, I will. Um, no. In, in the text, Jesus not only says, what does your concern have to do uh, with me? In the, in the original, it's kind of funny. It's like, what does this have to do with you or with me? You know, and uh, because he says, my hour has not yet come. The scripture in the Old Testament speaks of how uh, the season of new wine will accompany the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus even knows that we're about to kickstart something and get something rolling here that has to do with messianic prophecy. And it can't just fit into the niche of a son helping his mom out. There's something bigger going on. And every time this word hour is used in the Gospel of John and in the Gospels, it's associated with him going to the cross. It's associated with him coming so that he could die for the sins of the world. And so he knows the new wine coming by what I'm about to do, it's going to enter in the kingdom come aspect of history, and it's also going to usher in my death. And so got to... Be prudent about how we're walking through this, Mom. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And so in verse 5 is where Mary just kind of shakes it off and is like, whatever, just do it. <laughs> uh, she just kind of tells the servants, whatever he says, do it. <clears throat> and so the correction doesn't really phase Mary, but her faith phases her. And so she comes, kind of like the Syrophoenician woman who's asking the Lord for a miracle, and he says, hey, you know, I didn't come, uh, you know, for the dogs. And she says, hey, you know what? Even the little puppies get the crumbs that fall off the table. And he's like, you right, you are right. Bless you, you know, I'm going to work this miracle in your life. Same thing's happening here. Mary's like, okay, I still need you, okay? So she comes with this awesome faith, and, uh, and his correction doesn't phase her. And so she tells the servants to trust and obey Jesus. You know the old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Nobody? Yeah, it's an old one. You should learn it. Okay. Uh, trust and obey. That's what she says to the servants. Whatever he says to you, you know, go down to the Dollar General or the grocery outlet if you have to. But bring her back a Samora Wina, okay? And uh, verse, uh, well, I would say uh, that the same can be said to you and me today 
as well. This is really good practical advice for everybody on the face of the earth. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Is that something that marks your life? Jesus says, do this, be this, trust in me, obey me. And you say, yeah, that sounds great for this and for that. But for these other areas, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to lean on my own understanding. Just a little bit of wisdom for you. It never goes well when you do that. Okay. When you say, I know, I know how to roll this one, Lord. I've got this. It doesn't go well. Trust and obey Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. And I'm sure there may have been a moment in, in the servants where they're like, what, what are we doing here? What's happening? We, we need wine, but we've got water. So how is this going to, you know, and, uh, but okay, whatever he says, just do it. Okay. It's a good word for us. What is he calling you to do? You know, there was a moment when uh, the disciples tell Jesus the words, not so, Lord. Okay? As those are words that should never come out of a Christian's mouth. No, not so, Lords. Okay? Only yes, Lord. Only okay, Lord. At your service. Let's do this, Lord. Whatever he says to you, do it. And so, verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, this is actually an interesting passage in many different ways. You can just picture it. And of course, we who grew up in Sunday school with the flannel graphs and the cool children's Bibles, you know, you've got all these great images before you of these six water pots, right? And then you either flip a passage or stick a little Velcro on, and then the water has become wine. And it's just a really exciting time. And as kids, like you love this story. And then the teacher passes out grape juice to you and you all drink it and you just have, you know, you're just excited about this parable. Okay. Those of you that grew up in Sunday school, you may or may not know what I'm talking about. Okay. Actually have my Sunday school teachers here. You know, you guys remember that you should marry your Sunday school teacher's daughter. I'm just telling you that's go for that. All of you young people. Okay. Uh, So there's these six water pots of stone, and they hold 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, I did the math on a calculator, and I just averaged it out. Let's say 25 gallons apiece times six of these. We've got 125 gallons of agua, soon to be vino, I think it is, or something like that. Okay, okay. All right. That's a lot of wine. Okay. And uh, what? I didn't use my calculator for this. 150? What? 50? Yeah, that's what I was saying. I rounded it. <laughs> Doesn't know about rounding and he's on our financial board. Trust me, you got to learn how to round. Okay. Now, why, why would this little snippet be in here in verse 6 about according to the manner of purification for the Jews? Just a fun tidbit, like fun fact. These water pots are used for the purification of the Pharisees when they're being strict. Isn't that just great to know during this wedding celebration? It's a fun fact because it takes us way deeper than just an initial reading of what's going on here. 
Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 3, talks about, and it's one of the few places that talks about these purification of the Jews. And what it's talking about is legalistic ritualism where the Pharisees have missed the point of the life and the freedom that is in Jesus, okay? And so what we're going to have at this moment of Jesus' history where Messiah is bringing in the new wine that was prophesied, he's walking into this miracle that it's about to happen, and he says, this isn't just family reunions and stuff as usual, Mom. We're doing something bigger right here. It's messianic, and it's kicking off uh, really the kingdom of God up to the point of my suffering and dying for the sins of the world. And here, what, what, I, what I have to work with in our midst are six pots here, maybe from that very synagogue that we, that we saw pictures of, six pots that the, uh, that the religious rulers would use to purify themselves, okay? And what all that I've read this week, and it was such an, an incredible picture of the gospel, is that all, all of these pots, okay, that, that contain legalistic law ritual from the Old Testament, is about to have something that is so much better and greater than, than we've ever known in the past, okay? It's going to be new wine. It's going to be better. We're going to see the, the master of the feast declare. But it's, a, it's basically an out with the old and an in with the new, okay? And so verse 7 says, Jesus says to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Okay, so whatever he tells you to do, do it, okay? So 30 gallons, 25-gallon pots here, and they fill them up all the way to the top. They totally obeyed. Like, if you're going to obey, don't fill it too thirsty. You know, sometimes Russell got someone a glass of water at my house this week. He's like, hey, can you get me some water? Brought it over. It was two-thirds full, and I think it was Joe Pappen. He's like, hey, bro, you know, how about a little ice and finish it up, okay? He's like, oh, I didn't even realize what I, you know. It was just a funny chuckling moment, right? But, you know, all, my favorite thing is when someone asks for water, I fill it all the way to the top so that it's got that meniscus just holding everything together, and then they got to, okay? That's what the servants did here, okay? Filled it all the way to the brim. And what this is a picture of, you guys, is all of the old ordinances of the law, all of the works-based righteousness that people thought that they had to do in the Old Testament. It's, it's filled. That time is done, and that time is full. They certainly obeyed, and little did they know they were bringing out symbolism as they did it. Moving on into verse 8, and Jesus says to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, this is interesting, and I wrote in my notes, because as I'm just reading this in, in plain reading, I just had to write down, we don't know exactly at what point the water became wine. And I just wrote, and this is kind of initial part of my study where I just write my thoughts, and it's always pretty deep stuff, okay? I don't know when the wine part happened is basically what I wrote. I said, it seems that it's at this point it's still water, and that it became wine while in transit in the cup. Okay, so that's just what I wrote. Don't think too much into it. Because a lot of guys, as they're studying this, they're, they're wondering the same thing. And as they begin to look into the original language of this, the word draw here, okay, 
always refers to drawing water out of the well. This is an interesting thing. What's happening is, this, I've never studied John and taught it myself, so forgive me as I'm getting a little nerded out here, okay? What happens is, the six pots stayed water. They stayed water as a symbol of the old, pharisaical, religious rituals and regulations, that's done. I've got a well here. And we're drawing out of the well. And so the language is, draw some out now. That word now is important. Draw some out now and give it to the master and it's wine. So Jesus is getting at what he spoke to the Pharisees at another time. That you can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't put the new and better wine into these cisterns that, ha- that are these um, ju- jugs, <laughs> these bottles. What were we calling them the whole entire time until right now? That's what I was getting at. These pots, okay? You can't put this into that because they don't jive. That's ritual, okay? And so the language is, and all the books that I'm reading deal with this, there's a new wine coming. There's a new source coming. And it's not based on the law. It's based on grace. It's based on the work of the Messiah. It's, wor- it's based upon the hour that is starting up right now that I am going to go and I'm going to die and lay my life down for the sins of the world, that the world might have life and that they might have it abundantly. And this, this wine, you guys, is going to be better than anything you've ever had before. And the book of Hebrews is all about that this new wine is better. The book of Hebrews is written to Jews who had uh, received Christ and had been walking in Christianity, but then they began to be persecuted for believing in Jesus, and they began to leave the church and leave the faith and go back to the rituals and the values of the Jewish system. And the, the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 don't do that. Because everything that Judaism points to is Jesus Everything in Judaism that you value finds its ultimate fulfillment in who Jesus is. And the theme of of Hebrews is Jesus is better, okay? He's better than the angels because he created the angels. He's better than the angels because he uh, became a man and he lived the life that no angel ever did to the point of suffering and dying for the sins of the world. And now he can sympathize for you. He's better than the angels. The Jews loved angels. They almost worshipped him. He's better than Moses in the sense that the master of the house or the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself because he's the architect of Moses. He's better than the priest because he doesn't have to offer a, a sacrifice for himself once a year. He offered up himself. He's, his blood and his sacrifice is better than the old sacrifices that had to be offered up time after time after time. This he did by offering himself up once for all. Okay, so learn to love the book of Hebrews, all right? It's just all about how Jesus is better. And we have a little bit of that moment right here where Jesus is better. And you're thinking, all I wanted him to do was get me some grape juice or some wine. Come on, what is all this extra detail? You know, because there's a bigger message of the gospel here. 
Who cares about facts of 150 gallons of wine? Isn't that a lot of wine, don't you think? Well, let's close our Bibles now, and I'll meet you in the back, and we'll shake. Let's talk about wine, okay? Forget that, okay? Forget the little details of how, how many gallon, a gallon in the Hebrew. It's kind of like our gallon, but it's more of a liter, okay? Whatever, okay? I used to nerd out on that stuff. Until I discovered Christ-centered preaching and how everything in the Bible is pointing to Jesus. Every story here is about how Jesus is the Savior of the world. These things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in His name. And so you'll read this and you'll go, wow, he did a miracle, so I know that he's the son of God. But how do I have life in his name? You have life in his name because he kicks us out of that dumb pattern that we always default to, that I've got to work my way to heaven and I've got to work my way to Jesus and I've got to work out my sanctification and I've got to white knuckle it. And I read five chapters this week in the Bible, so I'm doing better this week than I did last week, but I already feel like I'm going to have a bad week this week because it's going to be a busy one. And you're just relating to Jesus on your own labor rather than to just come before the pleasure of the Lord by grace. He loves you. He died for you. He paid for you. He's gracious towards you. Just love him. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Believe it or not, that's what they're getting at with this whole wine in the cistern thing, okay? And it comes out of a well. Draw this new wine out of a well. It's never ending. I was wondering when I was studying, I was like, and how long did the wine in the cisterns last? Did they distribute it to the guests to take home when they were done? I wonder. You know, <laughs> I didn't really think that. Okay. And the image is, it's like, man, they drew it out of the well and they distributed it. Because, man, it never ends. The grace of God and the gospel never ends. It's for today. I've, I've been a little critical of the song, uh, the new one we've been singing about, like, may his favor rest upon you and your children and their children and their children and their children, you know? And I'm like, it's like a Russian doll situation, you know? And it's like, how many children is the grace of God? And I was kind of going out to Poland. I'm like, I don't know that I like this song. And, and we just started talking. I'm like, oh, I love this song. Oh my goodness, do you know the grace of God in the scriptures towards your children and their children and their children's children and their children's children's children? Do you know that it's, that Psalm 22, the Psalm of the cross, talks about how a posterity shall serve him after he's risen from the dead? A posterity shall serve him. This speaks of, of a posterity is the generations. A posterity, a generation will rise up and another generation will rise up and they will go to the ends of the earth and they will tell about the gospel of Jesus and what he's done through his perfect life and through his sinless death and his victorious resurrection. Do you know that in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost and the preaching of Peter, he talks about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, new wine, just the work of the Spirit through the gospel, and that this promise of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and being bold to open up your mouth and tell people about Jesus is to your children and your children and their children. And it's going, okay? So, man, let's just not be so critical in our music. Like, okay, man, it's actually biblical. And now it's like my favorite song, and you're going to hear me singing it all the time. Okay, but all that to say, it was drawn out of the well and given to the master of the feast. Look in verse 9. 
when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. And then I love this little parenthesis. But the servants who drew the water knew. (laughs) They knew. And they're like, You know, the master of the feast is like, you guys, everybody stop. Stop the fiddling. Stop the jamboree. Okay, stop this. This is incredible. Okay, this is what he does. He stops the whole feast, calls the groom on up. Come on up here, Shadrach or whatever your name is. Okay. But that's a Babylonian name. I know. Made it up on the spot. Okay. Man, these homeschool kids these days. Calls the bridegroom, and he says to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. What we have is something here that is so well known at the wedding feasts, at the parties, that it's almost proverbial, okay? It's almost a proverb. I mean, this guy's almost reciting something that's a poem of the day of how you run your wedding feasts. I don't know if there's similar ones. It's like uh, something borrowed, something blue, 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 blue. Okay, uh, it's it's a similar little wedding rhyme. Okay, uh, it's it's a proverb. Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. He's almost spoiling it for people for their future weddings that they're going to go to. Like I. You're right. They've always done this to me, those tricksters. They set out the good wine at the beginning. And the language is when the guests have started to get intoxicated. Okay. Then they won't really know the difference. And then you bring in the cheaper stuff until the end. And you save yourself a buck or two. That's what he's getting at here. There is a small little lesson here regarding Christians and alcohol, okay? And the general principle, it's not the point of the text, and so we're not going to get into that. However, that there are liberties for Christians uh, to partake of alcoholic beverages. This is a biblical thing. It's a New Testament precept. But the restrictions are, as Christians, we are always sensitive to the consciences of those around us. That includes our social media posts. That includes where we would partake. That includes that we're aware of the gospel and the proclamation around us at all times. And the second restriction is never drunkenness. Okay? Never drunkenness. In scripture, drunkenness is a sin that Christians Stay away from, run from, okay? Uh, Jesus himself, uh, he made wine. Well, don't you know, Rory, that the wine of the day was watered down to two-thirds to one-third, and so it was really more like grape juice. That may be true, but in all the studying that you do, it's still wine, and good wine is good wine. And when you study a word that I learned this week in my reading called something like vinology or something like that, I totally messed it up, ventricriology or something like that, that this is actually 
wine with some kick that's going on here, okay? And Jesus was the one that brought it about. There are scriptural precedents for wine being drunk to bring joy to the heart, to make a heart merry. And that's something that's happening at this feast. There's celebration, and there are hearts being made merry, and Jesus himself partook of wine. It's the same language of wine that's used when other guys drink the same wine, and they get drunk, and they sin. It's the same wine. Wine is wine, whether you're drinking wine with a little bit of alcohol or wine with a lot of alcohol. When Jesus was around, they called him a wine bibber, okay? That's what they called him. All that to say, you know what, we have an example here of wine, the best wine, being drank. And it's interesting, some of the criticisms of this miracle come from more of a teetotaler type of an interpretation. And so they'll actually go so far to say that uh, in good humor, they were all out of wine and in good humor... Jesus grabs a glass of water because his mom said fix this and he walked up with a glass of water and he's like, my friends, the next round of wine. And in good humor, the, you know, the, uh, by the way, this is the order of the criticism, which goes against scripture. So just so you know, a lot of times when we start making stuff up, it doesn't flow real great. And so Jesus kind (laughs) of, guys, it's the next round because we don't drink, do we? Okay, hands the wine off, to which the master of the feast says, Ah, yes, bridegroom, come on up here. We have now the wine of Adam. The wine of Adam was water. And everyone kind of said, cheers, and then they drank water the rest of the night. I'm sorry, but that just sort of went. Okay, what we have here is good wine. Wine that fits with the deep meaning of the text, which is the gospel and the bringing out of better wine, this new wine. And so he says, not only does he state the proverb, but he says, you've kept that good wine, and good wine is good wine. You've kept it till now. In verse 11, we see that this was the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So this was the beginning, guys. Jesus had been anointed for ministry with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had gone out for 40 days and 40 nights and been tempted in the wilderness. Jesus has got a number of his disciples. Kind of all of a sudden in the Gospel of John, all the disciples are going to be there, you know. Uh, But right now we know he's got, you know, about six disciples, okay. And, And now this sign takes place. And it's interesting, in this gospel, the word sign is always used for these miracles. The sign doesn't end on itself, does it? What does a sign do? It always does something. It always points us somewhere, correct? And so these signs and wonders movements, so often what you have are people that are so about the signs and wonders that they just get enraptured with this, and I just got to have more of the sign and the wonder. And they forget, no, the sign and the wonder always will point to the, the end, which is Jesus. Glorifying God, edifying the church, getting the gospel out to the world. And so this was the beginning of these things to the disciples. It pointed them to who Jesus really was. It manifested his glory, 
which John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So his glory showed up that day in Cana of Galilee on that rocky hill that we saw. And when his glory showed up, his disciples believed in him. Remember, that's the point of all that we're reading. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, uh, the Christ, latter half of the verse there, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the disciples, they saw what happened with Jesus when this sign took place. And they didn't stay camped out on the sign. More wine, please, Jesus. No, they realized this is all for this great purpose of him coming and saving the world and bringing life and light to all he brings. So his disciples believed in him. Uh, in fact, that same passage in John chapter 20, let's look at verse 30. It says, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Remember it said this was the first of the signs that he would do. And at the end it says, the end of John, John 20, it says, he even did many, many more, which are not written in this book. And they were written so that that chief end of it right there. Look at John 21, 24. We have that in the text as well. I kind of jumped over that. John says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that this testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So as we're reading the Gospel of John, keep these later passages in mind that show Jesus did so much more than even what we're reading here. All the books in the world couldn't contain just the, just the marvelous, fantastic things that Jesus did. And all of these things were done so that you would believe and you would have life in his name. Hop down to verse 12 because it leads us into what next week will bring us to. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Let's go ahead and have the worship team come on up. Isn't that exciting? The story of the water turned into wine. I mean, I was not expecting this. I was excited for some good things, you know. The good old flannel graph days, you know. First you had water, and then you had wine, and isn't that great? It's like, we don't miss the big gospel picture here. It's an exciting thing. And so I want to encourage you as we're going to worship. You know, you might be thinking, I'm not a Jew and I'm not a Pharisee and I don't dress in the priestly garments or the uh, religious garb of the day. So the whole water pots thing, like, it's a little bit, you know, a little over my head and it's also a little, like, not applicable to me, not relevant but I would submit that it's way more relevant for you than you know. That maybe you grew up in the church and you've been a quote-unquote Christian your whole life, but you've never had life in Jesus. Your life has just been religious. 
It's just been external. And Jesus talks to religious people in in, um, Matthew chapter 23. And he just talks about how, you know, this external religiosity, religion, it's not impressive. He says, you're like someone that scrubbed a dish and you scrubbed the outside and the outside sure looks clean. But on the inside, it's, it's contaminated and it's gross and it's dirty. He uses the example of religious people being like whitewashed tombs. And they would do this back in the day. They would take the tombs and the outside, the, you know, it's just kind of a rock face. And they would paint it white on the outside. So it looks like a nice, clean burial place. And maybe that's you. You've got this facade, this veneer of religion. And it just sure looks clean. I mean, you never murdered anyone, you know. You haven't robbed a bank. You've never, you know, signed up with Antifa and broken windows of businesses and stuff. So, like, you're doing pretty good by today's standards, right? But Jesus says, you know what? You roll that veneer, that stone away, and you look inside, and there's dead men's bones in there. It's rotten. There's stink because you've never been changed on the inside. And you, you've been maybe religious at best, but maybe you've been more of like an American Christian, American religion. Just kind of check some religious boxes. Just kind of hit up church on Christmas and Easter. Priester. And, you know, and doing pretty good. You know, pray at lunchtime sometimes, it's a pretty good thing. And you don't know that your religion, and maybe you're even more faithful than that. Man, you go to church every Sunday. You know, you're, you're doing a Bible plan. Maybe you even serve. But it's all external, and it's not done by the hope of the gospel or by the power of the Holy Spirit combusting inside your life where you just want to live for Jesus and love for Jesus and serve Jesus and be with Jesus and know Jesus by reading the Word. And all of that religion, whether wherever you fit on that spectrum, you are like the stone pots filled to the brim with water. And Jesus wants you to know today that those times of relating to God based on your performance, they were done 2,000 years ago. There's new wine that comes from a living well. And it's new life that comes not from external strength, but from the power of the Holy Spirit within you, changing your heart, changing your mind, changing your life. It's called the new covenant prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus wants you to be a part of it. And so today I want to invite you to come and drink from the well, to come and drink from the new wine. I I did my time in religion. I did my time where I related to God based on my works. And it only ended in condemnation. It only ended in feeling guilty. It only ended in not having my conscience clean. It only ends in pride. I want to invite you to what I have tasted of, the new wine of Jesus. He wants to do a work within you, and it's going to make its way out of you, and it's going to come from a different source. It's going to have a whole other power, a whole other motivation. 
comes based on what Jesus has done for us through his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, and his gracious giving of the Holy Spirit upon everyone who would believe in him. So can I pray with you today? And if that's you and you want to move beyond religion and you want to know Jesus, you want to love Jesus, you want to have the power of a risen Lord in your life, I just want to ask you where you're at right now to lift your hand up and I'll pray for you. And the Lord sees you. The Lord sees you. Just receive right now. Receive that new power, that new life. Just hear, hear those pots being filled with water and then hear the cup drawing out of the well. And right now, go to the well. The Lord sees you. Just receive from him that new power, that new life, that new and better wine that Jesus is the fulfillment of. And maybe today, today's the day that you're getting saved, you're being born again, drinking of the well of Jesus, where he says, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Maybe today you've been a Christian for a long time, but you know it's been dry. It's been very external. And Jesus is just saying, man, I've got more for you. You've been missing it. Come to me and have power and new life. Those of you that lifted your hands and those that might want to lift them while we pray, just pray after me. Just say, Lord Jesus. I know that works of my flesh will not make me right before you. I know that external religion disgusts you if it's merely external. And I want to invite you into my life as being the true and better new wine to cleanse me from my sin, to bring me out of the rut of rituals and religiosity and religion, and set my feet upon a rock on the firm foundation of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for living that perfect life that I could never live. Thank you for dying the death on the cross that I should have died. You died in my place. Thank you for rising from the dead so that anyone who would believe in you would have resurrection power today and also has the hope of a resurrection tomorrow. <clears throat> Fill me overflowing with the Holy Spirit of God. Give me power to open up my mouth and tell people about Jesus who's changed my life and given me life. Give me spiritual gifts so that I know how you want me to live and serve in this church and display you to the world. Give me power over sin that it would disgust me and I would run the other way and choose righteousness. All of these things I pray for your fame and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's